see them fight family members. And my team members are saying that we are crying. We don't know what to wrong. This is what is happening, Prime Minister. I think the Vladimir Putin's venture is doomed uh, to fail. This is Conversations About Eastern Europe. My name is Emil Jule Nøtrup. Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine and more um, specifically this time about um, a performance which is called Flowers, also Cry. Today I will speak with Anastasia. And can you say your last name maybe? Krasnyshuka. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to try to uh, repeat that. Uh, that is the most difficult uh, Ukrainian name so far I think I've heard. But um, today we're going to talk about Ukraine, as I always do when I talk with Ukrainians. But then we will also talk about the performance that you are the uh, like the choreographer of, which is an um, yeah dance art. It is a dance art. Yeah, that is. Um, you will talk more about it, but uh, as I. Um, see it. It's like the idea is to express what Ukrainian woman going through uh, the war is um, experiencing, and like more concretely, the soldiers. Is that correct? Understood. And I can talk a little bit more about the yeah the plot uh, if you want later on. Uh, but should I first maybe introduce myself? Mm, yeah, I think that would be nice. Yeah. All right, so my name is uh, Anastasia Krasnyshuka and I've been living in Denmark for seven years now, actually. So I'm a former scientist, so I actually came to Denmark to do my PhD in laser physics. So that was uh, what I was uh, going for at the beginning, but then I decided to shift my career choice to contemporary dance. So I got my education in Denmark in uh, contemporary dance. And then graduated 2022 from that. And of course, full-scale invasion uh, in, influenced a lot of the choices and uh, what has been going on in life. So I've been volunteering, participating in different uh, activism part- happening in Denmark, trying to bring more information about Ukraine, uh, lead people with interpretation of the information, trying to find some propaganda through different types of medias. And... All of this led to actually me, together with other four people, co-founding organization, NGO, called Ukrainian Dialogues, with essentially the reason to bridge ties between Denmark and Ukraine, and mostly that happening through some soft powers, so cultural events, uh, social events, political events. We had quite some collaboration with European Commission, as well as... um, Different, different, smaller and go- smaller and bigger Danish organizations. So we had like good collaboration with the Danish Helsinki Committee, for example. Mm-hmm. So we conducted some conferences with them. For example, I think one of the ones, one of the the ones we proud the most is actually was called uh, uh, "Forgotten Unheard Voices of Crimea," one we actually, that we actually conducted in Danish Parliament. So that was uh, quite, I think, interesting. Uh, even since we invited the representative of Crimean Tatars, Sergei Musayev, who is also a chief editor of Ukrainska Pravda. So it was a very strong uh, event. So, yes, so this is from more like activist part of it. But of course, uh, now when uh, war is not a normality by any chance, but still uh, it's over one and a half years. Mm-hmm. So, you, so I personally trying to still come back to my art form as well. 
as also getting out a little bit from activism or trying to use my art form to also uh, talk about Ukraine through different uh, channels and different uh, ways of communicating. So therefore, I'm at the moment choreographing the performance called Flowers Also Cry. And that is essentially, um, it's in a way a documentary. It's a collection of war stories from different females mm -hmm. through Ukraine. And so I feel like it's uh, quite often there is quite a straightforward, straightforward way of seeing females. Uh, the war, and very often they are seen as uh, someone fleeing the war with a refugee. Yeah. But I feel like this is only one way of females getting engaged in the war. Therefore, the performance uh, itself, so we are showing it from different angles. So we have quite a lot of military women uh, in the front on the front line, or like in the armed forces of Ukraine, fighting along the on the side of the of the men. Therefore, one of the one of the scenes, one of the stories is about those people. One of the scenes is uh, about the daughter waiting for her father to come back from the war and how it is through the prism of a kid. One of the scenes is about a refugee who came to Denmark that I actually met at the very, very beginning of the full-scale invasion. And she was based, uh, her family is from the region that was pre-front line in 2014. So she also experienced the war already in 2014, which also not everyone still can grab that the war started mm. uh, back then. So she's also one of the one of the stories contributing and saying how they reacted then and what happened with her later on. Um, what else? We have also a story telling about the mother and her and the loss of uh, of her son. Uh, which is also a very tender story. It's also quite special for me because it's also a person I knew personally, so we studied together with him. Uh, yes, I don't know how much in details shall I go I think the stories. Yeah, I think I think for now it's um, like very good for me also to hear <laughs> about um, what it is that you're doing and the, like the subjects and scenes in the performance. But I think we can also talk uh, more about it. And later, of course, but what you're doing is very much also the reason that I wanted to talk with you, because this is a conversation series where I try to speak with whomever I think that I think that um, will bring something to the conversation and to the conversation series that will contribute to the effort of the Ukrainian war for self-defense and self-determination right now. And um, it's um, what I'm doing, just to like um, present it a little bit, is, I would say, activism for Ukraine. So in that way, I'm also a political activist, and I was very active already from the start of February last year when I realized what was about to happen in Ukraine with the full-scale Russian invasion and I guess back then I felt a responsibility to use my voice and to use my like uh, qualities to make sure that I was at least doing everything I could in order to help the overall discourse in Denmark to be more in favor of whatever 
I concede as things that were contributing to the Ukrainian war effort. And that is, of course, in the Danish political context, a lot about driving the discourse in the direction that is most useful for Ukraine in terms of what actions we then take based upon the discourse there is in the, the Danish population and among the Danish politicians. So after like the initial period where a lot of people obviously were very focused on it and um, had a lot of tension towards the war in Ukraine, especially in like around 24th of February last year and then like the following two months, uh, I guess I was very active on Facebook and Twitter and like on every social platform I think of and also engaged in activities. But then I went to Chile to do an internship in the fall last year. So in that period, it was a bit more difficult to like be active. But then when I got home, I tried to talk with some people if to ask if they wanted to do like um, political activism for Ukraine. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but we have like citizen proposals in Denmark. So I was actually back in February this year, I was thinking about writing a citizenship proposal to send F-16s to Ukraine, which um, wasn't something that was um, like that much on the top of the table back then. But then I, I now, now I'm just telling how it all started basically. Um, and then I talked with a Danish military analytic from our Academy of Defense. That is like an organization that um, works to um, provide knowledge about such matters. And I was talking with an expert I know from there, who's called Anas Puk Nielsen. You maybe know him? Yeah, yeah, we listen to him a lot. I think it's one's probably the best Danish military I think, I think by far he is the best Danish military analyst, and especially concerning Ukraine. So I was writing to him about this idea, about the citizen proposal, but then he ended up saying that he, um, he, he thought that uh, he liked my idea and the fact that I was doing something to help Ukraine, but that he, of course, couldn't um, be like a, a face of that due to his position, which uh, I completely get, but then that he would be interested in talking with me. So then I thought, all right, what can I uh, do based off on a conversation with uh, Anas? And then um, sort of from there, I got the idea that, all right, maybe to do a conversation series or a podcast, which I don't really like calling it a podcast because I think uh, certain uh, associations are connected with um, like podcasts as they're normally uh, being done. So I call it a conversation series instead, but I just thought that was in the environment there is for political activism about Ukraine, that would be the smartest thing that I could do um, if I wanted to get um, yeah, the message that I want to get across, like um, if I wanted to get it out there. So that was basically how the conversation series idea started. And then as I was um, writing out to people, I realized, okay, there is actually a lot of people that want to talk about this and also a lot of people with political power basically also wanted to talk about this. So I've talked with one politician in the, from the Danish parliament uh, and another politician also from the Danish parliament who is like the chairman of something called the well, so the direct translation would be like the the company of foreign policy. 
Um, but it is like more, more a council um, on foreign policy that is made up um, by Danish parliamentarians. So I talked with the chairman from there and then like I just thought, all right, this is actually the best way to do it. So that's why I yeah I chose to really go with the conversation series because I thought that was the best way to yeah promote the Ukrainian cause. And then I, of course, also wanted to talk with as many Ukrainians as possible to get their stories out there and also to bring forward their perspective on everything. So, so I guess that's like how you can say that I ended up doing this and now it's getting like uh, more and more meaningful for me, I think, also because I've spoken to so many Ukrainians now that also on a personal level, I feel it's important for me to um, participate in this struggle. And yeah, this is how I'm, how I'm doing it. And therefore, I'm very grateful to be able to speak to someone like you, who has done a lot of things that I really think is also related to the Ukrainian effort for freedom and self-determination. And it's also very nice for me that with this subject, it's not it's not necessarily nice, but it's like it's um how can we say it? It a subject yeah, a subject like this also opens up for many conversations because as so many Ukrainians have told me, like being in a war is such a broad thing that includes so many different like um criteria, developments and it's basically like everything that is connected to what a society is is also uh, related to then what the society goes through as they are also going through a war. And in that to that point, what you're doing, the performance, the organization, and everything you've done since you came to, like everything you've done since the full-scale invasion, like it's very much playing into your subjects that um, is meaningful to talk about concerning this war. And um, I think I want to maybe start with um here after the presentation uh, yeah and my name is Emil I'm 26 uh, yeah, I study political science and have always been very politically active in the social democratic youth party of Denmark and now I'm also just just started on an internship in the parliament for a, yeah, for a politician of that party so uh, I guess you could say that I'm pretty politically active and interested uh, as well and that is also, I think, um, one of the reasons for why um, I am so captivated by doing whatever I can to help the Ukrainian struggle because I really care about political participation. I really care about people using their voice and I really care about people having the freedom to do that, which is what the Ukrainians are uh, like. The, right now, the Ukrainians are <laughs> experiencing an aggression in which the goal is to take away the rights for the, for Ukrainians to do all these stuff, uh, to do all these things that I care so much about. So I, I really think that's um, a huge part of why this um, year is so important to me as well. But I think I want to uh, start off here by talking a bit about that you got to Denmark uh, seven years ago. So that was not um, directly related to the like to the war and fleeing um, last year, but why did you come, come to, you talked a bit about it in the beginning, but what was like the motivation for going to Denmark seven years ago? 
It's actually, it's a good question. I feel like at that point of time, it was 2016. And uh, I myself also been quite politically active even before that. So mm -hmm. I was participating in Revolution of Dignity uh, in 2014. What? I was participating. Yeah. Yes. So many, many of Ukrainians were, and I can, I can be also, yeah. I can say that I was doing the same. So I was one of the student leaders in my own city, and I was also going to Kiev. So many of us were trying to do as much as we could. So I could really feel that at that point of time, many things changed for me personally. And you suddenly uh, not really a kid anymore. And you feel you're a student, so you're supposed to take a lot of responsibilities. And you suddenly also thinking about what it is to be Ukrainian, what it is to experience uh, freedom, and how bigger the world is than your own country, and what kind of divisions there are in spheres of influence in different countries and how the world is divided in a way. So all of this was somewhere the background noise of my head throughout those years through finishing my um, master's, de master's degree at that yeah. point of time. And then I still got my degree in uh, laser, uh, laser physics and I started looking for the different opportunities uh, job-wise, and it wasn't really that many things happening in Ukraine at that point of time. Uh, and I was also quite eager to experience the world, actually, and uh, try to do something different. And this is a time, you know, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Then how old are you now? I, I am 29. All right, yeah. I'm uh, about to become 30. Okay. <laughs> but the last of the performance, I'll be 30. And so, yes, at that point of time, how old were you? 22? Yeah, around that. Around that, yeah. maybe, maybe like actually 21-ish. Uh, so, yes, and I started sending out applications um, to different PhD programs. And I was invited to one of the really, really good um, programs in Denmark for the interview, and I just went. So it was very easygoing way of uh, going with the flow. Still making some some decisions, but still going with the flow. Uh, so I got offered offered a position, and then I I went to Denmark together with my husband, as well political activist and co-founder of Ukrainian Alex as well. Uh, so yes, that was uh, the reason for coming there, uh, coming here, and staying here for for a while. Ooh, sure, and then you stayed. And then stayed. And then we stayed, many things changed, of course. So like I finished with my education, I realized that I still want to go for art background. And I saw more possibilities in Denmark for doing that. In Ukraine, it didn't feel, it never felt that this can become a profession. And mm. doing dance art and also maybe some dance art forms at that point of time were not what I was willing to do. So here I could also experience a bit more of contemporary dance and the contemporary art forms through movement. And I was fascinated, fascinated enough to actually try to make it my profession. So that was also partly the reason why I stayed because I got admitted to Copenhagen Contemporary Dance School for a three year program. Um, and then yes, one thing after another, many things happening also. My husband's career is also a scientist. He's getting further with his work. So it, it was never really at any point of time that we made a decision. So we come to Denmark and we stay. Uh, we wanted to experience things and some things worked. And then we stayed and we stayed and we stayed. Yeah, mm. yeah it, 
Well, it is. It is also if you look at it like uh, rationally. Yeah. Like I guess Denmark is a pretty nice country. Absolutely, it's one of the I guess one of the best countries yeah. just in terms of like general wealth, wealth standard of living, but and so forth. Then all you yeah. Also, people people are lovely, and I really uh, admire that a lot. Also, Danish support of Ukraine is enormous. So high level of education, but also willingness to listen is enormous. I think that for me, it would be so difficult to stay in Denmark if not for this fact at this point of time. So it really, every time when I'm traveling, I recently came back from Berlin. and I, That's not the same, right? That's so not the same. Uh, I didn't, in fact, feel safe, to be honest, being in Berlin. It's because I usually have my green yellow strap on the, mm-hmm. on the backpack. I felt unsafe enough to take it out. It, Did you felt that like uh, people were looking at you in a strange way then? Or? So there were quite a lot of Russian language, quite a lot of Russians around as well. And I wasn't sure how much Ukraine supported. So it didn't feel so safe being in the streets uh, explicitly showing that you are Ukrainian. And I was actually quite surprised uh, of myself being a bit scared. Mm. Yeah, I, I have actually talked to, I think, one girl. Uh, it's uh, Jeff Genia, and I think she is, she is definitely in Germany, and I think it's Berlin, Berlin actually. And we didn't really get that much into, but I definitely sensed as well that she was also pretty frustrated about like the the situation in in Germany and her feeling, her feeling, yeah, her feeling towards um, like the the kind of perceptions she had about um like general i guess you can say uh general yeah like the general um experience as a ukrainian in that yeah where where she lived in um, in germany and i don't want to get too much into like german politics uh, as well but if anyone is interested they can for sure they can check my twitter and then they can like scroll down all the all the tweets, and they will for sure uh, be aware of where I stand on like German uh, attitude towards uh, the war. But it to this point, it is important to say that Germany is also supporting Ukraine. So I've heard that there is this joke uh, when I talk with another Ukrainian who is in Denmark that sometimes when um, like the nations that are supporting Ukraine decides to send something to Ukraine. Some Ukrainians will say that our friends, our friends in Germany since, yeah, so this is like, uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, direct way. Like, no, not direct, actually, it's like a pretty, uh, like implicit way of saying that maybe Germany is not our, uh, like, best friends, but I just think it's important still to, still to uh, state that Germany is still and this is a metaphor. Right side. It's on the right side here, um, which is a too simple way to like set it up. But sometimes you have to do that, and they are still on the on the right side and have a chancellor that knows uh, what is going on. But as you're saying, with the people there, um, I think they have some trouble. I just really feel, and um, you just feel the difference. Uh, by the way, that average Danish person supports you here. And either people will be understanding and maybe silent uh, about support, or they will be very vocal and they will be very supporting and explicitly 
um, showing their support, being so warm and very compassionate. Mm. So that's a difference. Yeah. And uh, this is not to like, because uh, we have to go on to the, about the performance, but I really want to thank you for what you have done during the, yeah, the Euro Maiden, the Maiden Revolution and the Revolution of Dignity, because I did not say this in the beginning, but when I was writing my, like, gala assignment, I suppose you can say in high school, I was actually writing about the possibility for a new Cold War to occur, and this was back in December 2015, and I, of course, started this uh, assignment thinking that I would, like, I don't know what I was thinking, I just thought uh, this is going to be, like, the best assignment ever, and it's going to be about uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, the United States, and it's going to be like very much on the broad picture. But then I yeah stumbled upon the Ukrainian documentary, Winter on Fire. And back then I was 19 years old. So I think I was very much in my like uh, formative part of um, what, where, what, why um, your convictions were politically. And I think that watching this documentary about Ukraine and like diving deeper into that subject really changed something uh, within me, which was that it is actually possible to do something as a political activist or as a group that really has not just um, consequences for your own society, but can also have consequences on like a broader international scale. And I think that is what uh, I realized when I was watching this documentary so that really like captivated me and I guess it sort of learned me that so I was doing regular p politics I call it uh, like at the same time uh, being very active with whatever my um, local department of the yeah, Danish social uh, democratic youth um, were doing and I was of course very um, I was very passionate about that as well but I think watching that just uh, made me realize that politically there is like different levels to both significance of what you're doing and uh, like passions people can bring towards it. And I really realized that when I was watching the Euro Maiden. So every time I speak with someone that has yeah, been at those demonstrations, I really want to thank them because I really think what the Ukrainians did back then is uh, probably to me, like now we have the war, but that, that is like the result i guess you can say of starting point yeah that was the starting point mm. so so to me like what was happening back then is like probably the most historically important thing at least in in europe since the dissolution of um, the soviet union i feel like it's also impossible to separate the war from revolution of dignity exactly yeah and that's why like there is not much there is no separation this is uh, reason and consequences happening and of course like there was built up in the society leading to the revolution of dignity but uh, yeah yes. our neighbors not willing us to allow to build a stronger democracy and like okay so i want to like ask a few questions about the uh, euro maiden because you were there and like oh what, so first of all what what do you call it do you call it the revolution of dignity to make then revolution euro maiden because it has different stages, I guess. Um, and then these stages also 
as it develops, like then it takes a different name. So it goes from like Euromaidan, Maidan, then Revolution of Dignity. How would you like uh, classify that? I guess you can say. I would use all of the three of them because I participated in all three stages of it. But usually, for my own, uh, yeah, in my own voicing, I would use Maidan because this is the mm. Maidan, as well as Revolution of Dignity. I don't use so much Euromaidan because um, it became so much not about that mm. at the end of the day. That's why, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. So what started as yes. Euromaidan developed into something much bigger. Yes. So like the, the night of the beating up of the students basically uh, was the biggest reason for majority of the people to stand mm. up and to go to the streets and say, like, not in my country. This cannot happen. And, and the reason why I also want to talk uh, about this as much as possible is that I think, to a certain degree at least, um, the lack of knowledge about Maidan, the revolution of dignity within Western populations is, um, and also uh, among Western politicians, is a, a huge factor for why we weren't able initially to realize that Ukraine would not lose this war within three days, which were the general consensus if you look at what um, yeah, American and British intelligence, for example, were saying, and thereby not even not even talking about uh, German uh, like intelligence before. But but I think if we knew more about the Euro and uh, more about the revolution of dignity and more about the commitment and willingness that was expressed by the Ukrainians back then, I think would have we would have been way better off in our in initial like analysis, I guess you can say, of um, what was going to be like uh, the, the development of the war. You are absolutely right. We actually also at the Ukrainian dialects, we also place quite a lot of focus on the revolution of dignity. We have once in a while talks. Um, so for example, one of the talks we did was on deep roots of Ukrainian democracy. That has a fraction of it was also about Euromaidan, but was also how democracy was perceived in Ukrainian society through many generations and many centuries throughout, and how basically this shaped a nation in a way that doesn't want to surrender on the first, uh, you know, three days mm. as was predicted. And uh, so, absolutely, it's such a positive observation. We actually, I think, also had uh, yes, uh, we had, there was a conference organized by. University of Copenhagen Political Sciences Department and European Commission that we also participate in. We talked about you, Romain there. Okay, yes, so it's just uh, you like to talk about it as well and get like. And... I find it. I find it important, as you said. Like I find it important not to separate, and then for people, it's also easier to understand what it is that drives us. Mm. So it's not only the war for territory, it's not only war for people, for spheres of influence. It is a will to build a democratic society as a, mm. the rule of law and the human values at the top uh, rather than autocracy. And uh, is, it, is this rule order is it our neighbors are trying to put on over us? So that's why I feel like it's it's very crucial to to talk about that. So I guess you can say that all the things Ukrainians were fighting for during the revolution of dignity uh, has also, in in like uh, to a huge degree, carried on into the like big, uh, full scale war 
that the Ukrainians are fighting today. My, yeah. my opinion is definitely that, uh, yes. As well as, of course, timing of the, so like the war, in my opinion, was inevitable. Mm. I'm not sure would attack anyway at some point of time, but the timing altogether and really worked out. So, of course, with the annexation with, of Crimea, and we had temporary government uh, and all of the military structures in Ukraine basically being owned or like a lot of propaganda happening there, all of the spies and agents in Ukrainian military. So it was a fight without a fight in a way. And then, of course, the East was a bit of a different story because some some political changes happened in Ukrainian government at that point of time. And then later on, I think like it was also quite obvious that the past was, you know, like slow and painful reforms or many things not working, some things working, but the direction was really moving. Uh, in, the, in the right side, and of course that was, uh, it's uh, either now or never, in a way, for the war to happen, for Russia to attack, mm, yeah. in a very simplified way. Yeah, sure. And now I think we, I have to go on to talk more uh, about the performance that you are, uh, like the choreographer, how, how do you say choreographer in English? <laughs> choreographer, yeah, uh, I think it's a bit of a, like, it's a difficult word thing. <laughs> I don't know. Not political science. <laughs> Not political science, no. Um, but yeah, and this uh, Euromaiden, I didn't even write that on like the like talking points, but uh, like, it, it's, uh, it, it's like, it's such a, it's such an important event also related to this war. So when you said that you were actually having a certain kind of responsibility also um, as a part of that revolution, um, yeah, I could, we couldn't help to talk about it. Um, and I think we maybe will uh, return to it a bit later because I have some things that I thought about related to this, which I think, uh, yeah, we'll get back to. But now I want to talk about this uh, performance that you're doing, Flowers Also Cry. And you were already talking a bit about it in the beginning. But can you just um, share your thoughts about, like, what was the reason for you to think about creating this performance in the first place? reasons of course as an artist you have your internal reasons so of course if you're suppressing a lot of emotions and war is hard for everyone and also for us abroad uh, so you're experiencing a lot of emotion but of course you also have to take responsibility for doing what you can here in Denmark to help out also as you said uh, directing the discourse directing the narrative and not losing some of the other political battles uh, here in a country that is so supported for us and so, of course, uh, from my own pains and my own sorrows of uh, seeing how the world is just changing in front of my eyes, and as one part of it, and me being an artist, um, responding to that to that in my own art form. And another side of it is also, um, I think, like now over time, and. Um, I cannot really say that information and attention jobs, I think it transforms mm. the way. And I feel like now it's also a good time to start using also more soft power and some cultural diplomacy in a way, you can say that, uh, to keep a discussion about Ukraine, but rather than making it about breaking news and about some statistics of losses and um, awful things happening because they keep happening people get in a way 
desensitized mm -hmm. to all of that. Uh, I feel like it's um, it's a good place to start um, coming back to a more human and more emotional part of it, how it is actually feels to be a human in the war. And then one said it through the language of dance, I find it uh, quite special in a way because I think uh, all of those um, quite harsh times in your life, quite often you cannot really describe those words. So you for sure experiencing a lot of things, but it's difficult to put words on like, yes, it's awful, this is a tra tragedy, but it feels way more than this. In, in a way, you can also um, express more things through your body, through the language of the body, rather than only use, put, putting the words on all of the stories. So I would say this is um, another side of it. And if talking more about the matter of the performance, as I mentioned before, that quite often um, war is perceived, um, females, especially in war, are perceived as one role carrying. So refugees or people who are fleeing, people who are victimized as well. And this is absolutely true to the biggest extent, not to cancel this, I absolutely agree to that, but it's just to say that on top of that, there are first of all different uh, ways of being a victim and different ways through which you experience pain. So even if you are in a safer regions, for example, you're still waking up in the middle of the night from the air raids, your life is not the same. Uh, as uh, as one you don't have that um, another if you are you, you're missing your father from the war he's alive he's fighting at the front line but still he's not there with you physically you're like five or seven maybe you are a kid so this is also something very human and that we can all relate to we are all missing our fathers or mothers when they're away so this is also something to bring to the story, the kids um, away from the parents, um, as well as mothers missing the sons or mothers missing daughters. Um, so I think like it has a lot of different layers, a lot of different nuances, as well as perhaps uh, also talking about the courageous women at the front lines fighting side by side with men. We so far have forty-two thousand of females in the front line and how many 42,000 wow it's a lot exactly the number is huge and I was just looking at how many like how many people were in the Danish army like it's total yesterday there was around uh, 9,000 are like officially employed in the Danish army so yeah like if the yeah, the amount of women in the Ukrainian armed forces, right? In a country in war as well. So there are different ways of statistics. And of course, if I... Now, I think I, I'm just saying this to like, um, make a point about how many, how many women yeah. it actually is. Like it's so four times how many. All have the whole population of Roskilde. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Being females of Ukrainian army. And many of those as well are at the front lines. So, because in Ukrainian we have a saying that uh, the face of the war is not a female's. So I also had this on the back of my head that, well, yes, but those women mm. are also choosing to serve and do also heavy job of uh, being so courageous. So I feel like it's also so important to talk about them 
because of course war brings so much tra- tragedy and so much pain but at the same time it also so much um, empowerment and so much strength and so much resilience and the whole spirit to fight against something and keep going for a while it's it's also important to highlight that and embrace that as a part of the war experience so um, that's why i feel like all of those different sides of it they're just so different they all deserve to be heard and Mm. be talked about Mm. and then yeah of course i agree with all your considerations and i think what you're saying also goes a long way to like proving the point about war being about so many things that is not just uh, happening on the like on the front line but that it is very much like a sort of um it's it's an expression maybe even um about a society like the way that the war is then carried out and 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 um experienced by the people and so, I guess that's like um, sort of what you want to uh, express with this, with this performance. And also, in a way, you know, uh, your life changed because the war came in. Even though, yes, we cannot compare uh, being abroad uh, to how it feels being on the front line, but life changed. Same for um, I'm meeting a lot of Ukrainian volunteers here in Denmark and activists, and many people. Are have been working so hard for many many months. Many people I can also see how burned out they're getting. So all of the lives of all of these people abroad as well, pretty much um, everything collapsed in a way, and it became reformed in something completely different. So that's also a part of the war. That's also how war affects mm-hmm. society, and not only Ukrainian society, but it also spreads out of affecting us uh, outside. So I guess before in Denmark, it didn't have so much talks about military subjects before. No. Not so much was happening about uh, all of the, yeah, like what happens. It, uh, it we, have, we have done like a lot of, um, I think I think the way that it has affected Denmark, it's very much on like a, like a cognitive, like cognitive uh, scale so that it has led people, a lot of people, uh, most people, to realize that this world that we like imagined, a lot of Dan- Danish people and a lot of uh, like Westerners in general, I think, imagined to themselves before the full-scale invasion that we were living in this um, end of history area, mm-hmm. uh, so to say, where war would just never be relevant again and. Therefore, we were very comfortable with like um, phrases such as "war is bad" and um, "we're Europeans and we don't like commit wars." And I think that was a way of thinking that um, has kind of been not totally erased, unfortunately. Um, but we are like getting to a deeper understanding of what kind of world we are living in, and that is very much something that. Um, the full-scale invasion last year was like the starting point for and like if you speak at about it concretely looking at political decisions we made like last april uh, april last year like the government and a coalition of parties made uh, a new pledge 
for Denmark to live up to spending 2% of our uh, GDP on the, the military, which would have never happened had it not been for the war in Ukraine. And we also decided to do a referendum about whether 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 or not this, this is going to sound a bit technical, uh, but it's about Denmark and our relation with the EU. Uh, and before this referendum, we basically had a rule which said that Denmark was, were not obliged to participate in the European defense um, policy. So, vice versa. Uh, I, I don't think the vice versa here is, is um, it's, but it's more like with this referendum, we said yes to getting rid of that. Um, and there's a word I, in English I don't exactly have right now, but we have like um, a break. We have like, uh, before this, we had four breaks, I think, about Danish cooperation with the EU, where um, the cooperation that we have um, wasn't as, um, I'm going to say, like, that's what I said. It would be a bit very technical, this part, but we had like four objections, objections, I guess you can say, um, towards our cooperation, like with the EU. And one of them was on defense policy, which then we voted to not have any more as a part of um, the referendum, which um, was in May last year. And those are just the events that really um, sets the thinking of the Danish people on a path to be more aware of what defense policy is, what national security is, and what European security is as well. So in that way, yeah, the the world definitely uh, changed forever, and we can see that concretely in Denmark. And I also think that the way that our politicians understand the global, how can you say it, like security, design and our place in it and what decisions to take has been sharpened by the war in in Ukraine but but I think in to all these like to all that we have to remember that things could have gone very differently had the Ukrainians not fought off the Russians initially so that that would have and the, but that would have been that would also have been a whole uh, other world uh, and we're lucky that the Ukrainians showed such uh, courage and willingness and to sacrifice themselves and to fight off the Russians so that that situation did not occur. But then, um, yeah, in, in, instead, it just made us realize that we are not living in an all-peaceful world where every nation wants to be good towards each other. And I think sometimes, um, why didn't we realize that way earlier um but i i also um like have accepted now that everybody is not as interested in history as i am everybody is not as invested in politics and sometimes these developments especially on such broad topics as is war they can go a bit slowly but like the process was so accelerated um, after the full-scale invasion. So this is maybe more on a um, general, um, you know, like cognitive, um, uh, in a general cognitive way, I think the way that a lot of people are thinking has changed, uh, like for at least um, the, like the foreseeable 
future. So, so that's very true as well. Um, concerning, uh, but I, I think I want to talk a bit about um, the like the practical stuff also concerning the performance because now we've been on like the most psychological um, level, I, I guess, as you can sort of say, and about the thoughts going into why you did this. But I'm also a very practical person, I would say myself. So I like to organize stuff. Um, I like to make things happen. Um, I've always been, I guess, um, I've had some skills in terms of that also um, based upon my uh, like political uh, activism that I've been doing. So therefore, I also know that such things are not that easy. Like you, you don't just wake up and say, "Oh, I want to create a performance," and then you have the performance. Like you don't just wake up and say, "I want to do a, a conversation series," and then the conversation series just magically appear. That's not the way it's going. So there uh, must be like a lot of work and a, like a lot of processes that is um, like have had to happen for this could um, like become a, a reality so so can you explain a bit about like how does it start and then how does the process sort of uh, like happen with the performance all right okay uh, so i don't know how technical shall i get into it but i can guide you through the stages what it took me yeah sure maybe your experience yeah what you have done to be able to conduct this work and uh, with that said even before explaining that i think it's also important to take into account that timing is very important mm. for things like this. Usually in Denmark, you have the plan for theater place a year before-ish, and I wanted to make everything here and now because of the urgency of the situation. Therefore, it's a lot of work, more than uh, maybe it could have been if I was willing to give up on the time. But you weren't. I wouldn't. I really like that, by the way. You mean Karikawa? No, and yeah, I think like many things, especially throughout the course of the, the full-scale invasion, it's so much about the timing as well. When we can make things faster, when we can make political decisions faster, when we can make transportation uh, donations uh, and all of these kind of things faster, we have to make it happen because it's all about also healing lights at the end of the day. Um, yes, so uh, what it took me is at the beginning there was a fundraising uh, part and uh, I was trying to, yes, to apply for different kind of foundations. And then that was uh, also taking quite some time, so I guess like at least half a year it took me to uh, to do the fundraising. And uh, I think like the challenging part was uh, at the beginning I was trying to go for a more politically uh, engaged foundations mm -hmm. and I don't think that they were in set, uh, interested in supporting uh, artworks actually uh, which organizations can you like uh, mention some of them or remember. okay it, it, it's been a lot of applications alright yeah. so uh, maybe I mentioned the ones that uh, we actually did get supported by so later on I proceeded more with uh, art foundations and we got supported by Augustinus Fonden we got supported by William Demand Fonden mm -hmm. and by Dance School Spirit of a Wound. Uh, yes, so those three organizations decided to support us. And basically, it was the beginning of June when we got 
snow, maybe even mid of June, when we realized that we have all the all of the fun, all three foundations actually supporting us, which was on the lower li lim limit was our budget for the production was. And then I, I started reaching out more to the theaters, and that was also a bit of a challenge since the timing for the productions, they already have everything they planned for fall, even winter, and even maybe sometimes spring season. So neither of the theaters I approached uh, rejected, no one, one theater rejected for their own reasons uh, for the um, direction of the theater, let's say this way. Uh, but they offered all me 20, fall 2024. And maybe I'm an optimist or maybe I'm just naive, but I really hope that by fall 2024, uh, Ukraine has a border of 1991 mm -hmm. and uh, maybe some other safe have to be invested in. Uh, but uh, we browsed a lot around the city and then we looked for different theaters and the theater Tatra Zeppelin. Uh, even though they are usually doing, they're doing performances for kids and their adults, which is not necessarily what we are playing. Uh, however, they uh, they were happy enough to offer us uh, a theater for a week in September, at the end of September. So that was our time. And from there on, it became quite fast because I did have my team of the dancers willing to participate to start with. And so they were quite engaged, but of course, it also takes you quite a lot of technical crew to be able to produce all of this work. So um, I was, I am also, I'm choreographing, dancing in it, and I'm also producing the work. Uh, but apart from that, we also have, I also had to find a sound designer who would uh, make sound for the performance. Of course, of course, part of it is the music, but also part of it is also sound and we're using some speeches uh, from some of the real stories of people. We're also using poems. And so uh, it's a collection of different type of sound and music. So one person doing that, as well as I also had to find someone doing the lighting design of the play, because also lights change a lot to what you see on stage. You can create so much atmosphere, you can shape the space in the way you need, you can elevate the mood, you can bring it down, you can uh, show where the audience is supposed to look during the play as well, using the light, so it's also a very important element. Then also it took us to find a scenographer or a set designer and a person doing costumes, so this is a Ukrainian man. So we are working remotely, which also adds on to a bit of complexity of the communication and the, the whole logistics, but we are going for it anyway. I find it very important that we actually have Ukrainian scenographer because scenographer is a person who, in a, in a way, decides the, the stage, so the creations, in a way, you can say about it, and, and all of those choices. So uh, it's also really nice to have a Ukrainian uh, choosing which kind of settings we have for the stage with the country in war because he is the one living there i visited ukraine for, for t twice for a week maybe a week and a half during the full-scale invasion so i'm not the one living in war of course therefore it's so important to have his um his view on that and i think i hope i didn't forget anyone and of course like you also need photographers you need videographers to record the material it's a lot of work do the promotion you also need the pr to happen and it doesn't happen magically on itself no, 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 no. and we also uh, so like 
we are since uh, we call uh, we all the ticket sales are going to donation to Ukraine uh, from all three performances. We will donate it to a Danish NGO that is working on helping Ukraine called Fino. So they are also collaborating with us, uh, helping with the promotion of the work, so people know it's happening. Um, yes, we also have some uh, uh, helpful PR agencies so that we just met and will also try to help us with uh, getting the story heard. So people actually aware that this is happening. It takes quite mm-hmm. a lot of effort to uh, promote the work because uh, there is so much informational noise about uh, around you and then you're always constantly overflowed with news, with so much information and visual stimulations through social media. And of course, it requires uh, quite some effort to... Uh, to reach information to the audience, mm. so it might be about. Uh, I, I think that's yeah, that's uh, like that's. Uh, but I just think uh, for someone like me who's also very interested in how you actually go from uh, nothing to something, in this case being uh, like nothing was probably the point where you like uh, had the ambition yeah. to do it, but then there is just so many like different stages that you have to go through before you can actually like put it out on display. A lot of emails for sure. Exactly, yeah. But and I think sometimes maybe uh when I talk about these things, we we can get a bit lost in all the like very broad concepts and like the very like high and low feelings that there is. And I wanted to hear all this because I, I really find it useful as well. Maybe also for the listeners, um, if anybody wants to do something themselves, that they are also aware of the fact that you actually have to like set yourself up for doing a lot of work that is maybe not necessarily related to the things that are like really motivating your inner self. So I can, and I can only say uh, like the same with the conversation series. Like it's not that. Um, the most exciting thing to do is to reach out to a lot of different um, peoples, but that is something that I have to do and have to do every single week. And I have to make appointments every single week and I have to edit the conversations. And I also do some stuff on Instagram where they were real each week, which started off just uh, as me. And I have this Google home like speaker over there, which is that you can talk to it and then we'll, say something and just started off with me like saying some uh very um how can you say it designed message messages to it um and then editing editing it so that it just uh, seems as if i say play the best conversation series about eastern europe ever and then it just plays uh, my conversation series uh, so that was like the basic idea in the beginning but then that developed into me starting to like having to edit very long videos, which uh, also takes a lot of time. So it's just to make people realize that there is so much uh, like organizational stuff and structural stuff and practical stuff that also goes into coming across with your with your message, especially the way that um, that you're doing it to a lesser degree, uh, the way that I'm doing it. But I think it's very good to be aware of and um, very good to know for anyone who wants to um, like participate themselves more in the struggle, and we sh- we also will talk a bit about that uh, later. But now I want to talk. Um, this I think we can do this uh, like 
briefly, although it's difficult, but as I was buying the tickets for the performance on the 28th of September, which is a Thursday, it's also the 29th and 13th, which is Friday and Saturday this month. But I was reading about the show and what struck me, I think, when I was reading was how much focus and emphasis, emphasis, Sometimes I'm struggling with the English words. I don't know. Uh, it just happens. Uh, but it all, it's also, it's sometimes it's worse than I normally would get, I think. But then I think if it has become a kind of habit in the conversation series, but emphasis and focus on the fact that while people are going through this war, they are also sort of finding strength within themselves that they have never found before. So amidst all this like darkness, brutality, and like agonizing pain that is related to the feelings that people are like, especially like the Ukrainians are having going through this world, they also find like an amazing strength, um, as you were also talking a bit about before. And I think that is just like that is some very existential subjects, also on the individually psychological level. So. When you deal with such stuff, how um, how do you like approach it, and what what do you think are your deeper thoughts about these things? I mean, like uh, resistance in art through the war, or mm, it's sure I understand. Yeah, it's also it's also pretty abstract, uh, I guess. But okay, so I've been talking as as I've said to a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of. Um, a lot of them say that actually they've learned a lot about themselves during the war, which have enabled them to go on with doing stuff that they maybe wouldn't have done um, before the war. But but what what is um, like interesting to me to this point is that it comes on the basis of some very um, like difficult uh, feelings which they are going through as a part of this war. So I think what if you um, you are you understand? Yeah, okay. Yes, I think it's so much about um, from the most honest and the deepest point in place in yourself. You want the war to be over with Ukrainian victory because it's the only way it can actually be over. And then, basically, then you try to see how much do I have that can actually contribute to all of that. How, what can I personally do? Uh, what is missing around here that I'm either creating or uh, volunteering or um, someone around me needs some kind of help. So you're trying to match how much you have uh, to give and you also try to match what is needed around and who needs you. And uh, you just try and somehow to make it all happen out of yourself, even though it's not always possible. And for sure, you are very often shooting way above your head. And um, but it's also very much a feeling: if not I, then who will do it? If not not now, then when shall it happen? So it's in a way choice without a choice. You have to take responsibility because then at this place you are. There are things that have to be done, so yeah. So you just have to make it happen. Mm. And how do you find it difficult to, how can you say it, like 
put a light on such things because I guess if you want to uh, express the feeling of doing something um, which is a choice but without being a choice as you said um, how, how do you go about um, creating a, an understanding of that uh, feeling as a part of the like performance do you know what I mean so a lot of uh, Ukrainians are obviously having to take very difficult choices but so when I write about uh, when I've tried I've sometimes tried to write some articles and sending them into papers and also if I write like something on Facebook it's very difficult for me to actually really get across like some of the points or feelings that I have made had because they are on such a high level uh, like psychologically so I guess it must also be like a very fine discipline to to come across with such feelings as part of the p- performance. Yes, um, I think like in a way it's uh, to start with, I know it's impossible to express mm. everything that uh, Ukraine is going for. So I'm not trying to reach for that. Uh, I'm trying to bring more awareness and I'm trying to bring more emotion and I'm trying to break through the place where it's all just information it's all dry so i'm trying to contribute to all of it but i'm not trying to this is it Mm. this is a single piece of information you need to get to understand how hard it is to be ukrainian female in war not at all i'm trying to in a soft way to introduce a subject tell about those stories without screaming about them but still having them being heard so almost like um, I see myself being a channel in a way. So through me, maybe more people can hear about someone else's tragedy or someone else's uh, success or someone else's uh, fight or spirit. Um, so I'm trying to see it in this way because I'm, I don't think that uh, I should take in uh, yeah, the goal of uh, now, listen, I will explain you everything. That's for sure not um, what I'm aiming for. Mm. That makes uh, that. Yeah, I can, I can relate uh, also to what you're uh, not relate, but I definitely understand what you're saying. So it's like you want to bring in perspectives that maybe, and it also goes back to what you were saying about um, contributing with perspectives that are may not at the top of the like normal news cycle. So, so in that way, what you're doing is actually to get the feelings across the board as well. Yeah. Mm. So more emotional attachment to the stories rather than information and knowledge, because I feel like, uh, in, especially like in Danish society, I feel like it's, uh, uh, you got the whole story very right. So you're on the right side, you support with everything you have, and maybe even a bit more than that. Mm. I think it's just also nice to have a bit more emotional part to it so because we're all humans at the end of the day so not only practical decisions that matter and a lot of emotional decisions we are making ourselves for for ourselves but also the ones that uh, lead to something else later on Mm. sure and i i think this leads us nicely into like the next part of the conversation where we are going to talk about like art culture and war and how 
that is all um, related in this sort of um, like I don't really know how to express it, but um, to me, when when there is a war going on, and especially and the type of war that Ukraine is fighting, it is like almost a, a sort of a, like a, a spider web to a certain degree, where everything is just connected. And as I wrote to you uh, as well, I'm not like the typical art person, so to say. So I haven't like seen that many museums. Um, I don't really know like so much about the different uh, schools in in art um but i just keep realizing the more i follow uh this one the more i uh, like dwell into it and the more ukrainians i talk to how much culture and art is also related to their motivations and like to to their willingness to keep participating in the struggle and to keep talking about it and I think besides what you're doing, one of the things that really struck me was when I spoke with Natalia, I think that yeah, Natalia Schwerer, um, who is also a refugee in Germany, I think, but she was very, um, like, how can I say it? She was very affected by the death of the poet Victoria Amelina, I think, who, who died sometime during the summer. I think maybe maybe like it was even uh, before, but then it got like um, like it was confirmed in like at the end of June, start of July, I think. And for her at least, it was very obvious that the like her poems and Ukrainian culture in general was um, really had like was stood near to her heart, and I think also in that way. Um, that is true, and maybe not in that way, but that is true for a lot of Ukrainians. That like the the art and the culture that they fear would be taken away from them if um, Ukraine is not successful in this uh, defense war is also like a hugely contribute con- contributing factor to why they also really cannot. Um, live with any other scenario than a complete Ukrainian victory um, so and you're also of course very you're like occupied with art on a daily basis um, so so what do you think is like the really because of course culture is everything uh, I think um, and I think that art is like a big part of culture but how do you think all these things are related and how do you think it comes to like display or has come to display during this war yeah like you're absolutely right like when you said like culture is everything absolutely i can i couldn't agree more because and culture is something that is shaping the nation and moral values of the nation ethical uh, giving ethical perspective to the life of the society so uh I think like what strikes me the most how still uh, Russian culture is celebrated uh, in the in Europe and Western countries, and and then it's almost being seen as a, this is one thing and the war is another thing. And um, but for me, I, I really I really see everything as one big thing. As you said, like it's a spider web. So that the greatness of that culture that was also uh, colonizing other cultures, being a true empire, 
taking out everything from the periphery and forming the image of own great culture, then suddenly finds it appropriate enough to uh, to bring to life all of the soldiers and then find it fine enough to go and invade another country, commit multiple atrocities, commit war crimes, and and find all the excuses why culture should be outside of politics in a way. So all of this, um, for me personally, it's very difficult to separate and uh, not even difficult, I don't want to separate because one thing leads to another. And an opposite way for us, of course, so like this is a side of the Russian society growing up with the culture of invasion and ce- celebrating the expansion of the of the society, of the borders or whatever is not belonging to them. And, and at the same time, it's also the culture of resistance and the culture of fighting for the freedom, and culture of actually being able to maintain your own uh, is also so much about the things we're talking about here. And it just, um, it's basically like it reflects the war in the same way. So in that way, do you actually think it's a war of cultures as well? As well, of course, because the, the world of worldviews uh, and the world of cultures, it's all, you cannot really separate things. It's also a war of cultures, willingly or unwillingly. And it's also a culture a choice to commit atrocity or not to commit atrocity. It's a choice to uh, to protect your family and uh, things like that. This is all culture as well. So, of course, we can talk about the art pieces being created about all of those ideas. That's taking it a step further. But those are the ideas that society is being shaped around through all of those moral values and historical events happening and leading to this point of ours and reaching out further from here. And, of course art pieces created, or performances, visual arts, uh, and music is also really a huge uh, part of Ukrainian uh, culture and art scene. It's also uh, some of the places where uh, Ukraine was in a way allowed to carry its being Ukraine. So even throughout Russian Empire, for example, or uh, USSR, um, that was also like some of the things that were allowed actually to be, mm. were allowed, or maybe it they neglected it a bit more, so it was taken away. Uh, Ukrainian songs, for example, traditional Ukrainian songs, a lot of them are being carried through many generations and brought to to today's um, today's uh, culture scene, to art scene. So the, the national anthem? And national anthem, but also Chirwana uh, Kalina or Hey Hey Rise Up. Uh, the song uh, that was sung by a Ukrainian uh, singer, Andriy Filinyuk, maybe you, maybe you. I, um, no, I don't know. I'm pretty much sure that you uh, heard the song because later on they also made a duet with uh, collaboration with Pink Floyd. Okay. Actually, so they recorded this song. And essentially this song was an anthem of uh, Ukrainian defenders in 1917. Uh, so... All of those markers are being carried through art and culture. So history is being carried uh, through uh, songs, for example, uh, to our today. Um, that's why I feel like uh, art pieces created around all of those ideas, just a reflection of the historical events, political events happening in different time frames of the society. Mm-hmm. Therefore, yes, I truly really don't see any 
possible separation between art forms and uh, war happening. If more than that, I feel like artists uh, have maybe even more responsibility actually to step in and create something more than just a piece of information, but also make it into something more. Also um, directing your audience, educating your audience about the different events happening or different um, currents, uh, historical currents, political currents uh, through your art and letting you reflect through your art all of those events. I think that's a very good description of why all these things are related. And maybe I just want to touch upon some of the songs because you say that there was a song written in 1917. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken. It could be. It could be there around the around that time when Ukraine were fighting for its national independence after. Yeah, you sorry. Exactly. Yeah, which was um, like after the First World War and after the Russian Revolution in February 1917, um, where the Tsar was uh, like deposed, and then the. Yeah, first they had a provisional government, but then came the Bolshevik government, and what all that resulted in in Ukraine was that, uh, how can I say it? Yes, they they got occupied in in the end they got, but but like during that period before uh, Ukraine um, was forced into the USSR, there were um, years where Ukraine you. Ukraine as a nation and as a society and um, like Ukrainians as a people they were fighting for Ukrainian independence of USSR and back then songs were written which they are then now also today listening to Zero. yeah so so it's like songs written back then more more than a hundred years ago actually plays a part in today's war in terms of I guess motivating Ukrainians actually tonight. Coming so, as you're coming back to your roots as well. And the the national anthem was that also written in that period? You know that? I don't. I don't think so. To be honest, I think it was. Uh, it might have been a bit later than that. Ah, uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not mistaken. Mm. But and also to, just to, so I I think we can go on after this. But I also want to touch upon what was um like in terms of culture and war. So. After Ukraine came apart of the USSR, like in the initial period, like Lenin, who was then leader of the USSR, he actually um, allowed Ukraine to a certain degree, yeah, allowed in like quotation marks, that's very important to say, because of course all that got erased and taken away from Ukraine pretty um, like soon after that. But he did, I'm not, maybe... This maybe like maybe it was more a situation of where he couldn't uh, prohibit Ukrainians from doing these things at that time. Um, at that time, but during the twenties, they at least had a sort of um, like cultural, like abrasia uh, where like songs were written, uh, poems were written, and a lot of things that were related to Ukrainian identity was created. But then, of course, the USSR took that all away from them pretty soon after that. Um, because, and, and this is where the point is, because USSR, I think, 
realized like the maybe the Russian USSR had so yeah so annoyed with these uh, like RSSFR and then the US and the Ukrainian as well. But basically, Russia was uh, controlling USSR. That's what people need to be aware of. So Russia decided it's getting uh, too much with this uh, Ukrainian culture thing, and maybe they were worried about what was actually happening in Ukraine, and then they decided to take away all their culture. And that's uh, also um, plays into the conversation conversation about whether or not this is a culture war, which um, it it is for me. It is today, and it was during the times of the USSR. Um, but then it was just a latent culture war, I think, between Ukraine and Russia. And if you look at the 20s, you can definitely draw some um, events that were happening back then and then related to today. And then, uh, but there are uh, quite an interesting, because since you touched that subject, I will just comment on, uh, yes, so like when USSR was formed, then somehow some kind of softening was uh, around and then there was like, I think it was called uh, Ukrainization, Ukrainization kind of, as it was allowed. But uh, in a way, it was not really an allowance in any kind of uh, um, means for the culture to, to strive and exist. It was mostly <coughs> simplification on mm. the culture. So then may having one main big culture is Russian, and then cherry-picking some of the simplified uh, Ukrainian art and some of the other republics' arts happening around, uh, and then confining them to something little, cute, and provincial, mm-hmm. instead of that being perceived as serious culture. So that's why, like, very often when we see all of those um, dressed-up costumes with uh, very shiny fabrics, Sharavari uh, being very shiny, it's more of um, um, not the most successful appropriation of the culture and substitution <coughs> of something a little bit deeper hidden there as an actual thing. And then even when this was still developing in one way or another, then uh, 30s were really awful for Ukraine because of uh, Holodomor happening, the terror of famine. But apart from that, there were also um, the, yeah, the period of time that was actually called a prosecuted renaissance. I think it's called, oh, uh, sorry, uh, executed, executed renaissance, yeah. Executed renaissance was basically within seven, eight years, all of the brightest mind of Ukraine. Uh, were executed, killed, uh, um, prohibited, put into jail, killed, uh, and all of these kind of things. So basically all of the people who could have anything to do with politics, philosophers, uh, people who did art, people who did any kind of cultural work, people who just spoke Ukrainian or people who just were very much pro-Ukrainian, some of the prominent maybe businessmen of the time, as it were pro-Ukraine, all of those people were basically wiped out and by the Soviets. So you can see also how big of a drama it is when a nation is suddenly taken out all of the brightest mind. Mind it has sure kind of direction for for the country to develop. This is a huge together with a terror of famine, many people being killed of the of the yeah, of the Stalin's uh, famine. And then going into the Second World War, 
And that one was also such a, such a big tragedy for Ukraine, because when we come back to it, 100% of Ukraine was under occupation. Majority of the biggest battles were happening in territory of Ukraine and uh, Belarus. Belarus, part of Poland, but still, while Russia had, I don't know, six, maybe 8% of territory occupied. So... Uh, I know, like Russia, proper Russian. Didn't have that much of its territory, except yeah. Yes, actually, yeah. So at that point of time, maybe, yeah, they almost didn't have anything. So with all of these things considered, and I can go go on even mm. more, the complexity of the regions was the forceful deportation of parts of the Ukrainian population and mixing it with Russian population. So a lot of tragedy happening there, but also starting with the wiping, wiping down all of the cultural and prominent... Uh, mm. Yeah, like yeah. this subject is so it's so broad and it has so much historical yes. content and um, yeah, I think we could go on and on about that forever. Uh, I just finished watching the I don't know if you've seen it, but the Timothy Snyder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just finished watching it for like a second time. Uh, so I also like I'm very much in like um, a state of um, just kind of believing how interesting and many faceted Ukrainian history is and how related it is to all the things that we were talking about. But now I want to go on to one of the last points um, of the conversation today. But basically I made this uh, jingle, which is called um, Exactly. And that's because some of my friends told me that sometimes when I speak in the conversation series, I speak uh, in a way in which it is very difficult not to agree with me which is uh, something that I thought of and then we decided to do a jingle so it's, it's like a segment sometimes and first I'll play the jingle and then I will present uh, like something that I thought about and this time it will definitely be related to something we talked about earlier but here comes the jingle Well, I, I just wanted to you, you've made a brilliant closing statement Absolutely Excellent. Mm-hmm. So that's the jingle. And it's the voice of uh, Marina, Marina Myron, who's like a uh, military analytic from a uh, college in, it's called King's College in London. Uh, so let's just get her name here as well. But what I really want to test with you is if whether or not you agree with me with the fact that this war, like the starting point of this war according to me, is actually, I think it is um, the 30th 30th of November 2013 when uh, the president back then in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, right? Yeah, when he first decided to crack down upon the demonstrators violently as they were demonstrating against the fact that he didn't sign what was... um, in a Ukrainian perspective, otherwise a very uh, historical um, Ukrainian EU trade asso- uh, like um, association, s- some sort of like that, yeah, association. So he didn't sign that. Then protests started happening, which is what eventually led to Maidan and the Revolution of Dignity. But a lot of things had to happen before that could, um, before that would take place. And as you also said in the beginning, when he cracked down upon, upon these people, violently, that kind of led to the events that then 
not like of course there is deep history as well so other things goes into this as well but like to my part my opinion is that the war actually started from when he decided to crack down upon these protesters violently because that was the first time that violence was actively used as a means to oppress um, people thinking uh, freely and people expressing their mind freely. So would you agree that that could be said to be like the, if you really are to get into detail, like the starting point of the war we're seeing today? I would almost agree. Almost agree. Almost oh. agree because, um, in my view, if um, he signs the association, uh, she wouldn't sign the association with uh, a European Union and try the association, and then uh, uh, protest on the people, protesting people were on the streets, and then he decided to crack down the protesters, and then what we see in Russia usually, no one's uh, on the streets. So I don't think that this could be the beginning of something bigger. In a way, I see that result what happened. To his action, the first of December, the first March of millions on the street uh, of people. Response. Of I really the like. People. I really like that. Response of the people is, in my opinion, more the static starting point. Because if the beating up would work and people just decided to swallow it and take it, then nothing would ever happen. That's. I've never thought about it. That well, I, I guess I have uh, like uh, to a certain degree, but that makes so much sense. And I, I actually, I really like your correction to my uh, like opinion or like yeah, my conviction about when it started, because then it also becomes more of an um, how can you say it? Then it was not an a decision made by an oppressive. Um, like autocrat that enacted uh, like the, the start of the war, but it was actually the will of the people to respond and to go against those decisions that were like the starting point. Did okay, so so just um, talking about the decision of these um, millions of people to um, go out to the street. As for someone like you, who I guess you were when when did you become like? Very invested. Was that already before? Before, a bit before. So yeah, but so did it surprise you that so many people decided to to come out to the streets? Difficult to say. It just felt like at this point of time, I really sort of me myself contributing and being one piece of that puzzle, and just being very you know like a a kid happy in a way that more of us are coming out to the streets and marching together. So every time I remember, I would change the news. Okay, now they're stating that we are, uh, you know, like 800,000 uh, people. And then like, okay, and then like a bit more, and then a bit more, and people keep coming. And then the news are being updated and updated. And then like, okay, some say that it's over a million. So that's why it was called like a first march of millions. And so I think it war was more this kind of sensation, a bit of an excitement that people are coming together. Do you think this can, can be uh, compared to, okay, so let's say um, the full-scale invasion on the 24th of February last year, that could have also, if the Ukrainians didn't have such a willingness to sacrifice themselves for uh, freedom, human rights, and self-determination, do you think those two situations can actually be compared? So in a way, 
like the full-scale invasion was of course enacted and the aggression is all on the behalf of Russia. But the fact that we actually are now seeing this war is also the result of the willingness of the Ukrainians to fight freedom, just as were after um, yeah, Yanukovych decided to crack down. Yeah, uh, it's a smaller scale of the, of the same response in a way, and the same protest. No, this is not happening. No, this is not happening in our own country. And no, this is not happening with us from the, ex- ex- from the external threat. So yes, in a way, like, there are so many parallels, in my opinion. Of course, you can never compare uh, tanks are coming to your uh, to to your street into your home and crashes through your home, and uh, some craters, uh, you know, being on the street or like some tear gas yeah. being uh, exposed to you still surprises you. Of course, you are like experiencing violence and when police is beating you up, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's not it's of course not the same. But the parallels, the ideas are the same. The will to resist is the same. Mm-hmm. But is it is it actually a case of, so as you are saying, from your point, now also from my point, from my point after you said it, like the the war we're seeing today started with the response of the Ukrainians in like millions to the um to to Yanukovych violently cracking down upon demonstrators, so. I really need to say this in a way so it makes sense. So, actually, what you can say is that yes, the full-scale invasion started on the twenty-fourth of February, and on the same day, on the same day, the like full-scale war, full-scale national defense war for human dignity, also began on the twenty-fourth of February. But that is then related to the fact that Ukrainians already on the first of December in two thousand and thirteen decided that they were not going to have it with Russian influence. So so that the way that Ukraine responded to the full-scale invasion can actually be, um, like you can draw um, the, ex- like the experiences of the 1st of December is related to then the response of the Ukrainians as well to the full-scale invasion. So in that way, the situations are similar but whereas nothing, like, so before the 1st of December, there were the, the violent crackdown on demonstrators. And then, then there were the response. And the response of on the 24th of February is actually similar in a certain way, on a much bigger scale, of course, much more <laughs> violence and much more, uh, like, risk to die, of course. But But it is, the response is more connected to the 1st of December than it is to like new feelings arising after the the full-scale invasion the feelings were all, the feelings were already there and they were already um like clearly stated on the 1st of December do you think uh, that's a, a way you can look at it then in a way yes um I would just be careful with um because like at the time on the 1st of December it wasn't really much it was anything there was Russian influence, we knew about that. But at that point of time, it's not how we connected the dots. It was more about we don't want to live in oppression. Mm. It wasn't so necessarily about under Russian influence. Um, it wasn't really the way of seeing it. So we didn't want 
to belong to the autocracy that was exposed on us. And it happened to be coming from the Russian side that we realized and dug into that later on. So, yes, in this way, yes. Mm, so the face of the oppressor, like, changed. Like, uh, maybe, maybe that, maybe it didn't change. Deformed. Deformed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or became more evident for us. Exactly, yeah. And uh, now I know you. We we went way above. Uh, like we we talked so much about so many things that are like so meaningful and so interesting, and has so much to say about this war. Um, so there is a few things that we didn't make, um, but and that is the what can we do like as individuals if we want to participate in the struggle for Ukrainian freedom um, so I think to this point maybe we can talk sometime in the future um, where we can delve deeper into the, to this but an advice I would at least give for people who listen that want to do more is to contact a person like you or a person like me who is already in the struggle and therefore would be able to like put someone in like say yeah you can do this uh, with me or you can do this with this organization so so in that way that's the first step i think for someone wanting to participate in the struggle but don't really know how to is that they can write to someone contact someone who is already doing it do you have like a quick advice here on that uh mm-hmm. Getting getting engaged in the subject, so educating yourself about what is happening, checking news sometimes, checking also what is happening in your city around you. Is there any event Ukraine-related that maybe you can swing by, get a little bit more of information and share that information with your friends? Really? Knowledge is really big power. And on top of that, uh, of course, advocating for Ukraine at the level that you are capable of talking, keeping the agenda open, Donating if you have a possibility of doing that, taking part in the political life of your own country when it also comes to Ukraine, but it also when it comes to your own country, so being active on this level as well would also help Ukraine in a big way. Sure. Also, maybe just like a closing statement from my path is that as an individual, you also have to, I think, on a psychological level, be willing to give a certain amount of yourself to the struggle um, so that you you have to work a little bit more maybe or put a time into a topic that you normally wouldn't. But then what I would say that most people will realize after doing such things is that you actually get a lot back to yourself uh, as well, both in terms of learning but also in terms of connections and people you meet and like just the knowledge of our lives. Life path. Exactly. Special of your own mm. And also just one last point, because then you really <laughs> you really have to go. Uh, but one last point is that as an individual, you actually have a place in history and you actually has a place to influence the history um, as an individual, because that is what individuals have been doing all throughout history. If you, um, at least if you look at history the way that I do it. So I think that would be like, yeah, the finishing uh, statement from my path. My path. Uh, do you have anything you want to say in the end? Yeah. We can all choose and shape the life we want to see. 
So we just have to step up, not be scared and uh, keep going because there is always something waiting for us uh, in front of us. If we really, really want to make something happen, then we just should make it happen. That's a perfect, perfect statement to go out on. So thanks a lot for the conversation. Thank you. Anastasia. Thank you to all the Danes and internationals that are supporting Ukraine. And we will keep doing that. And I really aim to keep doing this once every week because that is also like the, a pledge I made in the, in the beginning and want to fulfill that all the way until the end. Hey. Consistency is key and Slava Ukraini.